Tangent Tank, Solving the Housing Crisis, a Tangent Original Series. This Tangent Tank dives into the world of prop tech companies tackling the housing affordability and supply crisis. Join our panel of judges, Jeffrey Berman, partner at Camber Creek, Zach Ahrens, co-founder at Metaprop, and prop tech entrepreneur Edward Cohen, as we ask the tough questions and challenge each founder and evaluate their startups based on innovation, potential impact, and scalability. You'll listen firsthand from the founders themselves as they share their stories of determination and resilience. 1.8 billion people around the world do not have adequate housing. Housing affordability reached an all-time historic low in the US as over 10 million renters spend over 50% of their income on housing. Amidst these challenges, there is hope. Across the world, we're seeking startups that leverage technology and talent to tackle this crisis head-on. If you are a passionate founder, please apply by emailing your company's deck or video to tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Welcome to Tangent. This is Jeffrey Berman. Today on Tangent Tank, we have Mike Schneider, CEO and co-founder at Acre promising to help future homeowners build wealth like a mortgage and significantly limit their downside. Hi, Mike. Where does this podcast find you? Hey, guys. I'm calling in from Raleigh-Durham. Thanks for having me. But where is Raleigh-Durham? We have, Well, you know, we have listeners around the group. Raleigh-Durham is in North Carolina. It's one of the fastest growing metros in the country here. We have great weather, a couple hours to the beach, a couple hours to mountains, and it's a phenomenal ecosystem that's grown here. We will certainly dedicate enough time to discussing what's going on in North Carolina because I definitely think it's uh, one of those places that deserves a lot more headlines and attention in terms of the tech and real estate ecosystems that have been building towards. However, Mike, let's talk about Acre. Let's talk about home ownership. Let's talk about renting and why this uh, bipolar world that we've been living for I don't know how many decades where the only real ways of being able to live inside a home in the U.S. have been majority to either go the traditional mortgage route or to find somewhere to rent. How can this be better? Why is Acre better? Great question. I think you put it well, Edward. We, we saw a couple problems when we were founding this company. One is exactly as you put it. There's two options. Either I have zero control even over my lease being extended in a lot of America, right? Or or my monthly payment increasing 28%, or I have to go and take out a loan for $700,000 uh, and take on a mortgage and take on 100% of the maintenance and the responsibility. And here in this country, we also spend six, eight, 10% to sell a house. So you take on all the friction and transaction costs. And so it's becoming increasingly more expensive as housing prices keep going up. And now with mortgage rates, there's a real challenge there for a lot of not just kind of in the affordability kind of capital A affordability side of the market, but just everyday Americans looking to be in a great school district, it's becoming harder and harder to get a mortgage. So, you know, the traditional rule of thumb used to be, let's get a home that's kind of three times your annual income. And in a lot of higher income places, it's it's now eight, 10 times, but that's spreading across the Southeast, et cetera. So we, we've viewed that there's a huge part of the market that was underserved where we could actually build a product that was a better financial outcome than a mortgage for a big section of the population and a way better experience. And so that's what I love. When you have a product that's actually financially better and a better experience, that's where you have the opportunity to really scale something to get mass market adoption. So our model is very simple. We align the incentives between the resident 
and uh, our you know investors on the other side. And there's a value sharing component where they're sharing value from day one and they don't have to pay any of the transaction costs and have any of the friction. They do put skin in the game. So they, they're putting 5% into the home. So they have a real share and they get 10 to 50% of the appreciation. So you get, you're building wealth as you're in the home. You can buy in a great neighborhood and a great school district where maybe there isn't anything for rent. You don't pay any of the transaction fees. So you have a lot more flexibility and you always have the option to buy the whole house and get a mortgage if you wanted to. So it's just a much more flexible and makes a lot of financial sense for 30% of homeowners that sell their home within the first five years. So for all of those homeowners, this is a better deal. And then if you add into that, the renters that would love to be building some wealth, but have been, been renting by choice because they are more mobile or they just want some support and not have to take on all of the maintenance themselves. Uh, it's a really big market. Wow. So just for, for context there, the, the cost of homes in the US has outpaced wage growth uh, over the past decade. And since before as well, I mean, home prices have rose 74% between 2010 and 2022, and the average wage rose only 54% only that time. Clearly, we're in need of urgent housing innovation, but going back to what you said, so it seems to me that what you're doing is, is you're lowering barrier of entry, lowering friction for residents to enter a quality home, and uh, you're also setting them up for success in a way that you're not burdening them with their more with a mortgage or with you know rent that they can uh, con they can control is that correct that's exactly right in fact they're not taking on a loan at all so you'll see on our website one of the taglines is that it's not a mortgage it's not renting its acre it really is this third new product category but i think one of our customers actually put it maybe better they said oh so i'm not buying this house with a bank i'm buying it with a partner and i think that's an interesting framing of this right because they have a buy-in, they're putting some money in, but they didn't take out a loan. They aren't increasing their DTI. So it's interesting, the use cases, Edward, it's everything from the 55 plus that just want to be closer to their grandkids for the next few years, but they know they're not going to be there long-term. They don't need to take another huge bet on a single family, you know, home appreciation. And they love the fact that they have a phone number to call and, you know, services built into it to the young family that knows they're only going to be in that home while their kids are in this stage of school. And then they're moving across town to get to another school. I remember a conversation with one of those where they said, it's actually kind of funny. Our parents just paid off their 30 year home, uh, their 30 year mortgage. And they don't actually like that home. Like they were laughing about it. They're like, we're not going to pay off a house. We're going to live in four different homes the next, you know, 15 or 20 years. And this is a much more flexible way to do that where they're actually going to build more wealth because we cut out the transaction costs for them and they still are sharing in the appreciation. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of, of use cases of why people are choosing something that gives them a little bit more flexibility and optionality. And again, if they change their minds in today's world where mortgage rates are 7.3, you can go get into our uh, an acre home at a much lower cost. And then if rates come down to five, you could always just get a mortgage and, and transition if you, you decide you're going to be there long term. Right. So what happens to your model if, like I can imagine during this time period where mortgage costs are elevated, it's more expensive for people to get into their homes, this model should have significant traction from all sorts of different communities and all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. And we should talk about that. But what happens to the model when interest rates fall, let's say, back below 5%, which some folk uh, and economists are forecasting for late 24, early 25? What happens to the model? Yeah, good question. You know, we we just kicked this off in earnest this summer as we start to ramp up. And like you said, Jeff, the consumer demand is certainly outstripping the the capital we're, we're, we're piling together to raise this. So there's a lot of consumer demand in today's market. 
but we were starting to build the platform and build the legal structure two years ago. And so it was interesting. We've already seen kind of three different housing markets in that regard. Um, the question we got back then, Jeff, was what happens if interest rates go up? Doesn't that blow up your whole model? Um, so it's fun that we have had that, that kind of, we've seen the different consumer value props when we're doing customer testing. This definitely works in a lower rate environment. And the reason is our customers are comparing this to a fully loaded mortgage. And so our pricing is based off of that. We want this to be a better deal than getting a mortgage on that house over three to four years. And we're, when we're sticking to that. So as mortgage rates and interest rates are pretty closely tied, come down, we still have a positive spread on our debt that we're getting. So we can still deliver a great product in a 4% mortgage environment. I, I'm with you, Jeff, though. There could not be a better time than today where people are looking for mortgage alternatives more than they ever have been to launch. You know, just comparing home ownership rates. I think where we are now with uh, home ownership rates, uh, we are around 65% home ownership rate in the US, while 35% are renters. However, when you zoom in, the population under 35 year olds, uh, it's backwards almost. It's 65% uh, are renters. They're they're buying a lot later. That's right. They're buying a lot later because we have different priorities, but also we just can't afford it, basically. That was a part that was easy to build for ourselves because I don't want us to wake up 10 or 20 years from now and there's a whole generation that just chose to rent for another 10 or 15 years and realized they could have built another couple hundred thousand dollars worth of wealth. So I think that's a big opportunity. I think the other opportunity is that single family is starting to institutionalize. I think people are realizing that this is actually, uh, you know, the first trade was just snapping up homes after the GFC and realizing if you can buy at a 50% of replacement cost, we'll figure out management later. I think that we're we're standing on the shoulders of Invitation Homes and Predium and a bunch of others that prove that you can manage these very effectively and it's actually a great asset. Um, so we're coming in looking to build another, you know, six to ten million dollar single family operator, but in a way that uh, is back getting people into homes and helping them build wealth. And it turns out by aligning the incentives and and this mortgage comparison, we can actually deliver competitive and and often better returns than a traditional single family. What kind of growth are you forecasting, you know, in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, if you can talk to it? Yeah, so we're uh, just launching our first three markets. So like you mentioned, we started in Raleigh-Durham, which is one of the top growing markets in the country and still very relatively affordable vis-a-vis uh, -vis other metros. So it's a great place for, you know, this first portfolio to really outperform. But we'll be launching Atlanta and Dallas here early next year. So just starting to ramp up. Dallas, I think, has been the market that has built the most housing and also commercial real estate for the past couple of years. Certainly lots of momentum in Texas. In During our discovery call, you mentioned how Tesla finally made electric vehicles a reality. You know, I've seen ads for electric vehicles from the early 20th century, you know, 1908, 1909. They were, you can Google this, they were promoting electric vehicles. I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, it says a lot about execution, says a lot about timing. Tell us how Acre is doing a Tesla for housing. Well, I use that as inspiration. No, I think it's a good, and I appreciate the question. I use that as inspiration because I think that one of the hardest things of what we're tackling is that we're creating a new category. And I think Tesla has done that very, very well. To your point, electric vehicles, from my view, were a joke before the Model S came out. Uh, you know, it was some curiosity off in the side. I think that's where a lot of, some of the housing fintech products are kind of in that outer rim, right? It's like, oh, that's kind of an interesting program. Maybe somebody might do that. I think if you're going to create something that really can scale, 
I like the Tesla approach. You have to prove that it's actually a better car that happens to be powered by electricity. And the Model S proved that and won all kinds of awards. And then over time, they worked to get to the Model 3 and go for, for broader adoption. We're, we're taking a similar approach. So we're, we want to show that this is actually a 10x better experience than getting a mortgage, which is not hard to do. Uh, homeownership is one of the worst product experiences on the planet. When you when you add up all of the mortgage underwriting and the pain of that and then the inspection and the closing process, and then your water heater breaks two weeks into owning the home. So we can deliver a way better experience, but we also wanted it to be a better financial deal. And so that was what we have worked really hard to create something where this is actually just a better product for, again, 30% of homeowners that aren't going to be in that home for more than more than five years. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's our inspiration is we we want to start with kind of built, showing that this is a better product than that mortgage. And then I think we have the opportunity to scale in, in lots of different directions. I think uh, going back to what you said, uh, buying a home with a partner, I think that's, uh, you know, fundamentally what's what's different with, with when you buy it through a loan with a mortgage. I mean, I remember that day I discovered the concept of prepayment risk from the bank's perspective. Or I'm like, wait, 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 why, why is that a risk? They're getting their money before, right? They... Well, shouldn't that be good for the lender? Uh, but actually, it's a risk. It's not something they want. Well, it turns out if you take that approach of creating a partner, like you said, there's all kinds of experience benefits we can add in there where you have a phone number to call and that changes the experience so much. We had a customer call in on Thanksgiving, two customers actually on Thanksgiving, both with plumbing issues. One of them loved that we sent them a, here's how you can resolve it on your own. Our private team sent that over and they did it on their own. We sent the other one the same, both of them we said, or we can dispatch a plumber right now and add $200 to your bill. The other one chose the easy button and they were so grateful that they didn't have to take any time away from family. Qualified plumber shows up, takes care of the issue and it only cost them 200. It was the same cost as if they had wasted all their time on thumbtack trying to figure it out and have some random person walk through the door. Was that over the phone or did you have, was that done through an app? It was mostly done through text and, and app. Yeah, we, we you know, most people aren't actually calling. They're, they're texting these days. But think about the experience there versus you on your own home have to figure it all out on Thanksgiving. When I think about the value prop and full disclosure, uh, I angel invested in this company. Canberra Creek is, is not an investor, but I angel invested for a variety of reasons. And I'm happy to go into that. But what I thought was interesting is that we have a portfolio company called HappyCo, which has something called Happy Force. And they are rolling out features where residents can get help through their phone, i.e. meeting the customer where they are, and actually like plumbing, electrical, things that they might be able to do themselves, but actually having a, a person. And they're delivering that through technology. And, and something that I liked about the Acre Proposition, one, getting people into homes where they're building wealth, taking less risk, but two, this idea that there's a, a layer of services around it. And I think, as you said, single family is tacking in that direction. You have large institutions that are building these portfolios where they know they're going to have to deliver a multifamily-like experience. And so families definitely been at the vanguard over the past number of years. I believe single family uh, is, is headed that direction as well. And, and what I liked about Acre was creating this new affordability layer. And I want to talk about that for a moment and as, as well as that technology layer, but regarding the affordability, what's the price range of the home that you were, that, that we're talking about? Because when we talk about the affordability crisis and Edward, I think you and I have, have touched on this in, in the past, what does that actually mean? Who are we talking about? Are we talking about the working class blue collar worker that might be earning anywhere between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars a year. Are we talking about 
blue collar to white collar where it's 100 to almost 300 but the neighborhoods are are insanely priced where where do you find your sweet spot where's acre sweet spot i think it'll change over time jeff but we're we're launching with a product that's kind of the the middle of the bell curve in the southeast so we can go a little bit higher than a lot of single family again because of our model it it generates higher higher returns on a 500,000 600,000 home than you'd traditionally get in just a rental so we're going down from 300,000 up to $750,000 homes in the southeast that are highly typical you know we're not buying the the outlier homes in any neighborhood we're we're buying homes that are going to be low maintenance newer inventory great homes for our residents that we can price effectively and so yeah we're, we're we cover that it's about 82% of the the real estate market that fits within that middle of the bell curve the future of real estate is here and by here i mean at blueprint in las vegas nevada this upcoming september Join Jeff, Zach, and I in the largest, most global gathering of industry innovators leading the charge in changing the built world from construction to transaction. Blueprint is the premier event for industry executives, real estate and construction tech startups, and VCs. Over 2,000 attendees, more than 750 startups and investors, 250 plus speakers from more than 50 countries will be represented in this year's conference. Join the Tangent team this September 11th to the 13th at the Venetian Hotel for three days of networking, learning, and ecosystem advancement. Tangent listeners get a $200 discount by going to blueprintvegas.com tangent. That's blueprintvegas.com tangent to get a $200 discount for this year's event. Hope to see y'all there new ownership models or new structures to help residents get into homes are not new, right? You know, for the past few years, we've seen a new wave of uh, startups trying to reinvent a rent to own model where people have a lease to purchase agreement where they supposedly build towards that down payment, a portion of their rent goes to building the equity as uh, as a company buys the home for cash on their behalf or puts the down payment on their behalf. We've also had home equity sharing products. We've also had buy your next home before you sell one, right? So what's wrong or or why are all these, why are some of these models fundamentally, uh, you know, not aligned with the incentives of the residents and the company and the investor and, and how are they different than Acre? Well, first off, I, I celebrate the fact that we have all those things cropping up, Edward. I think if we rewind 10 or 15 years, and Jeff would know this better than anyone, there was very little consumer innovation on the on that front. And I think it is in this overlap of finance and housing that you see a lot of the most interesting consumer opportunities. Um, we're taking a very different approach than a lot of them. And maybe I'll cover a few that you talked about, because I think so many people have focused in on the kind of rent to own. How do we get people into housing but the subtext of that is how do we get people who don't qualify for a mortgage into a mortgage? And nobody's been asking the question, is a mortgage the best thing for everyone, right? And it turns out for 30% of people who did get a mortgage, we could offer them a better product. And for a lot of people that you know are struggling to get a mortgage, I was just sitting down with head of Ginny May and a bunch of groups that are you know advising the president of housing and others that were talking about the fact that Oftentimes, once you, you do get someone to a mortgage, right, they don't have any reserve and something goes bad at the home. And like there's this, you know, the, there's a lot of learning that's happened in COVID around forbearance and other support we need around that particular problem. How do we get people into mortgages? 
I just don't know that taking on whether it's $175,000 or $750,000 of debt is always the best solution, particularly when we live in a world where we're only in our jobs two or three years and we're starting to, we're moving a lot more frequently. I think it, as we lower the transaction costs, we're actually going to facilitate more of that where people can be more mobile, but still build wealth in their homes. So we took a categorically different approach. We said, why don't we align the incentives and share value from day one? So you're putting money in, you have real skin in the game, you're caring for that home as if it's your own, and you are benefiting in that. You're getting a, a big chunk of the upside. You're actually protected on the downside since you didn't take out a loan. You don't get wiped out. If the market's down 10%, and you only put 5% into the home, you just lost 10% of your initial investment. So it's a much more stable product. You're not, And also we cover all the major maintenance. So there's not a huge expense that's just going to blow someone out of the water that wasn't planning for their HVAC to go out. So I think we've created by aligning the incentives, actually a better product for consumers. And it's actually better on the investor side because we cut out so many of the kind of key expenses that have drugged down single family portfolios. Jeff mentioned the analogy to multifamily. In single family, it can be one or 2% of your portfolio that damages the home on the way out because they're frustrated for whatever reason and drags down, you know, your turn costs go through the roof. You know, we have 5% of the home's value as recourse. We have a lot of structural things and that are actually having our tenants and residents improving the homes, not just taking good care of them, but actually making them better. So uh, we think there's something really unique here. Uh, we're starting with people who, again, can get a mortgage. This is just a better product for them. Um, but I think that's kind of where we have where we have focused differently than a lot of folks that are saying, how do we get more people into mortgages? We just don't think the mortgage is the best product for everyone. There are, there are also marginalized communities or communities that have been marginalized by banks and getting a mortgage has not been easy. I mean, this just happened, what was it, a year ago, where you had redlining again and, and racially tinged on the appraisal side. And, all that. and it, it's like, we're in the 21st century and this is still happening. And this, time, this kind of bias is still happening. Something like this, to me, seems to solve for that because you just don't have to deal with these legacy prejudices that major financial institutions might have. I'm not saying they do have, I'm saying they might have. Those types of things make me mad. And then there's everything from the makes me mad to the just nonsensical, Jeff, of you have a 1099 contractor who's making $160,000 a year and can't get a loan, right? Or we have founders coming to us all the time saying, I founded this company, I sold my, here's my balance sheet and the bank won't give me a loan. There's, all, there's also the, this just doesn't make sense why it doesn't check all the boxes on the mortgage side. So I think you're right. We're, there's definitely a, uh, a lot of it. it I, I don't know if it's inefficiency. It's just, it's just the cruft of old systems that, that we can cut through and, and help people um, get into that home with a uh, better structure. Yeah. During my time at Cape Analytics last year, where we were uh, providing AI capabilities for distressed mortgage and uh, single family rental investors, we did a study with the FHFA where we discovered that there's still a ton of bias uh, when it comes to appraising homes, right? And uh, you know, till this day, most of most of our appraisers are you know over sixty, male and white, which nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you look at homes within the same neighborhood or homes that are in very similar condition, built in the same time, being appraised, uh, you know, drastically different or even slightly different, it impacts wealth creation. And as as expected, the usual groups within our society have been uh, the ones that have been impacted uh, the most when their homes have been undervalued. So this is why, you know, more technology, better ways of appraising is always important. And uh, I think what, what Acre is doing there, you know, is really 
uh, addressing a, a, a big problem. And if if 30% of existing homeowners are, are potentially good candidates for it, that sounds like a, a solution that is really thinking big, right? Going back to the rent to own models, I, you know, without going into too much detail for each company, I mean, there's there's great teams out there, you know, Divi Homes, the land this is of the world, uh, you know, some of them are even claiming that their rent to own programs have an 80% graduation rate, as, as some of them call it. That means that after three to five years, the renters, 80% of renters become homeowners, which it it absolutely sounds way too good to be true because if, if those numbers were real, we'd be seeing rent to own proliferate across the country. You know, at the end of the day, we if these companies are so good at and they claim they're good at, te- at uh, resident education, right? Uh, financial you know, empowerment to get them to build for that down payment. I think some of them may may want to consider pivoting to like a, a real an online real estate education platform, right? Their valuations will probably be impacted because you need a lot less money to build a an online education platform than than competing for single family homes with Blackstone. These models are just not not seem to be working for for the majority of people. Well, I'm glad they're hacking at it. I, I think you hit on another thing that that I care a lot about, which is there's about $110 billion that's slated to go into single family. And most of that is going to crowd into 350,000 and below homes. So it's going to become harder and harder for folks uh, to buy in a lot of areas, especially because it's going to be concentrated in certain markets that are going to perform well. So we think, again, it's a great investment class. We, we just want to be a part of uh, enabling that capital to invest behind people that are building wealth. And again, we can, we can deliver competitive returns on that. So I think it's a it's an exciting time now that we're seeing single family start to institutionalize. I think you're going to see more unique products coming to market. Absolutely. Let's move on to the North Carolina Triangle. What is going on in North Carolina? Everywhere I see, NC is on the news with something positive. I mean, there's even claims that it's among the two best Carolinas in the country. So, uh, you know, Mike, please tell us, <laughs> please tell us what is, uh, why did you choose that was very Zach Aaron's, by the way. I love. That. Listen, it's 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 rubbing on me. It's rubbing I on me. I love that. I give Zach Aaron's the, the the inspiration. Why North Carolina? Why are you headquartered there? Why are you you know you're you're staking personally and professionally present and future in North Carolina? What's going on there? You know, it it is amazing to watch. There is a, a really uh, a couple of things happening, particularly in Raleigh Durham. I think it, I think North Carolina in general is growing, but Raleigh Durham is really exciting because you have the biotech healthcare, which now after after COVID, everyone understands you've got a lot of that. That was the original research triangle was actually that side of things, and then you have IBM, Apple just dropped a headquarters here, Google dropped a headquarters, um, so you're seeing a lot of tech companies coming in, more founders moving here and moving their companies here. It's a great place to raise a family. You're seeing this higher upper middle class building out and it's it's just a, a kind of booming ecosystem i unfortunately think traffic's going to become a thing which it has not been but it's still incredibly affordable so we're recruiting great talent from san francisco new york every day um, that is excited about building a high growth company in a place where we have direct flights everywhere i can be at a 9 a.m meeting in new york so it's a, it's a great spot to be Everything that you just said is is super exciting. I mean, the, the influx of top talent, you already have existing great schools there, which again is something that the likes of Florida or, or other places that are hoping to rival the, the Californias and the New Yorks of the world for like becoming true business and innovation ecosystems are, are somewhat t- not taking it for granted, but underestimating how hard it is to really, to truly power 
ecosystems and and schools and education is a crucial part of it. Yeah, I forgot the the four big universities, and then the current wave is all these chip factories. So we got two. You know, I think the the tax environment here and the business environment. Uh, MSNBC just rated it for the second year in a row, the top date for for doing business. So I think you're seeing a lot of this next wave of chip factories and others starting to pop down here as well. Even though I've seen firsthand uh, the the growth and the explosion, at least on the media, but also in a little bit on the on the ground in in Miami, in Florida, in general, you know, Tampa as well becoming a top market for attracting companies and talent. But uh, truth is, Miami Dade County has lost eighty thousand people through uh, net migration, either to other parts of Florida or to other states, only in the last two years. Right. You have you have to quantify and qualify who those people are, who's leaving, who's not. So it is, it's not a straightforward picture. Absolutely. We need, we need some nuance here. I like that, Jeff. According to Zillow, home prices in Miami have soared 53% since June, 2020. Second most out of the top 50 metro areas in the, in the country after Tampa, who's, you know, only a three hours north. Median asking rent in Miami has increased 27% since 2019. So a little over half than than what home prices have increased so definitely it's a better deal to be a renter down here however is miami and florida taking a lot of the headlines that north carolina should be getting i think it's a story of the southeast i think you, you're seeing the 100 billion dollars of you know wealth moving to the southeast i think people are realizing you can again still work at a high growth company and live have a better quality of life as you're raising a family like you said the kind of millennial generation now getting into that side of things and you can uh, own a own a great home, be close to the downtown, and and be part of something exciting. So I think it's it's really a story of the southeast, and that aligns with a lot of the investment dollars. I think we're we're directing into this as well. Taking a slight tangent, uh, but inspired what you just said earlier. So transit, I mean, it it pains me to see places that are truly developing and and becoming cities and 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 hubs to attract top world talent having the opportunity to at least re rethink or consider other alternatives other than just being addicted to the automobile, which is a great invention. However, we have become dependent on it to survive in the United States. Like you, It's not that you need that to drive your family in the weekend. No, you need that to survive, like to work, to do everything in your life. After living in Salt Lake City during COVID, such a beautiful place, they even have that existing train infrastructure in place However, it's it's not nearly frequent enough. Cars have the right of way over the track. You're so close. Like you 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 got the right ideas here. Why are we still prioritizing such an inefficient way of moving people around? I just hope somewhere around the Raleigh Durham Triangle, someone there to take another approach or to consider to think bigger. I would love that. I grew up in Austria, which has maybe the best public transportation on the planet, and I miss that. Uh, if if anyone in Raleigh Durham decides to pick up that baton, unfortunately, uh, it it keeps getting struck down in various forms, and it's it's slightly depressing. I I don't know whether we're going to actually leapfrog to autonomous vehicles picking up groceries, et cetera, here in this country before we actually invest in you know rails and other things that will will get us there. Um, still a big open question for me, but I agree with you, Edward. Traffic's just going to get worse, and uh, there's no real real plan on the train infrastructure. Even Florida is getting a train now. I mean, Brightline is extending between cities train. I got to tell you, it's amazing living in Palm Beach and being able to walk to the train and then, and then go right to Miami 
and hop off now. But here's here's the challenge, though. So first of all, there already was a train that was working called the Tri-Rail. But the Tri-Rail was, I believe, publicly owned, whereas Brightline is privately owned. And if you look at the service, it is quite different. Brightline is absolutely beautiful. You get on that train. It's, it's, it's glorious. But the problem is when you get to Miami, the traffic is horrendous because you know this. It's just it's impossible to get around that city. Their their infrastructure is not nearly capable of handling the amount of people that have uh, that have migrated there. So actually, Edward, a migration out of that city is probably a pretty uh, pretty good thing. Actually, you're right. I think that's right. Just to wrap up this topic, I think we also have some incentives to consider, right? Local governments, state governments, uh, it, isn't it something like $9 for every dollar invested in highway expansion or anything dedicated to uh, auto infrastructure, we have $9 extra for every dollar invested. Whereas if you consider growing train tracks or any other method of transportation, you would almost look like you're doing financial malpractice from a government perspective. So I do think there's a lot to learn from Brightline and the private side execution. I think it's brilliant. And I would have that everywhere if if uh, it's working that well. At the end of the day, I think the only true way to do it is to work in tandem together, governments and businesses, because they each have their their core competencies. Well put, well put. And maybe some, maybe Elon or someone will come up with some superconductor, and then we'll have uber efficient trains, and that'll be the breakthrough. I don't know what it'll take. Mike, now collaboration superpower. Who would be your dream person? dead or alive that you'd like to do a partnership with that you want to collaborate with? That's a great question. I'm probably just latching off of what we've been talking about here, but I think that it would be Steve Jobs because I think that there's no greater product mind if we're creating a whole new experience. I rewatched, I think it's worth watching if you haven't seen it, the Apple iPhone launch video. And he kind of wove together the fact that this was like your MP3 player and the internet and a phone and an MP3 player and, and like all that came together in one phone and they rebuilt all the experience for that first launch. And it was cool to see, like, we still use the same merge call feature that they built because you'd never had that where you didn't have buttons, right? Where you could actually show it on a, on a screen and create this new experience. So I, I take a lot of inspiration for that. We get to re-engineer homeownership without dealing with a lender, right? Without dealing with having to resell to Fannie and Freddie. And it, we, we get to rebuild the whole experience. So I would, I'd love to get Steve Jobs to hack on this for, for a while with us. That'd be awesome. You would be able to raise a lot of money very quickly. <laughs> right? <laughs> I see some other similarities with Acre as well and, and Steve Jobs or, or the way Steve Jobs approached products, which is uh, you you tell people what they want. Like you tell people what's good for them, right? And, and you're also making residents more comfortable in the choices they have versus just giving them a ton more options that are confusing. Last but not least, this comfort zone. Mike, what's something you've changed your mind about? We want to challenge you. How have you changed your perspective recently? What information made you evolve your opinion and how did you go about it? It's been really interesting to see going through this, this capital market cycle where everything was frozen. And as people are kind of looking at where, where do they deploy? I don't know if I've completely changed my mind, but I have some real concerns and questions about a lot of the build to rent, where when you actually dig into the assumptions around some of the models there, People have actually stacked up different risks that they're just not valuing yet to kind of make it pencil. And so I have questions about a lot of those, whether 
we should just be, be building a multifamily or not. So I, I don't know that I've completely changed my mind. I was uh, early days, very, you know, I, I celebrate that we're building more housing. I think it's important. I think some of the investor rationale there may be a little misguided once we figure out what the actual returns on those look like when you're building further and further out. And it's kind of a drive to go for it. You have these assumed cap rates you're going to hit. So I, I, I think uh, I started off pretty bullish and have some questions about a few of those. Okay. That's actually very interesting and somewhat contrarian. And I love it because... Uh, on on one hand, you think build to rent, you know, they're, they're not scattered sites, they're a community. So you'd get some efficiencies, some operational efficiencies, because you can provide managerial maintenance service all within the same place versus having scattered homes. You can also, you know, from the institutional SFR side, you can increase supply uh, much faster than if you're just buying one-offs. Uh, how And you'd think you know, the incentives would be more aligned since construction because you're just vertically integrated in a way here. But interesting that you say that because I always thought, you know, why, you know, we, we need more density. I know in the US we have more space than we will ever need in our entire history for this uh, empire. But that doesn't mean we just need to like waste it on five acres per home per family. Yeah. And I may have, again, I, I'm not throwing the whole category out. I think there are a lot of great build to rent product projects. I think it has gotten to the point where everyone just uh, found that they could uh, kind of get sign off. And so that people are making some poor decisions, I think, in terms of location and product and all that, that I think is going to end up not being a great, not being great returns. Uh, but, you know, they're lumping development risk along with kind of pricing risk along with the product. And um, so I think there are great build to rent projects. I think there are some that are not going to pencil, are not going to turn out very well. I think we're going to come out of this wave where people are a little less bullish on it. More housing supply is usually good, but yeah, not that doesn't mean that the, the frenzy will generate the same amount of returns for uh, you know across the board. Mike Schneider, CEO and co-founder at Acre, thank you so much for being so brave and coming to pitch with us and share us your knowledge and uh, your wonderful company. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you guys for having me. This is fun. Thanks for tuning in to Tangent Tank, solving the housing crisis. Don't forget to follow, rate and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This series is edited by Daniel Mora and produced by me, Edward Cohen. Remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.